0: This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all electronic self driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com.
1: and welcome to this, I think we're fourth um, meeting of the environmental access presentations. I'm Karen Gorgi, and I'm privileged to serve on the environmental access committee. And I'm really glad to welcome you to this presentation uh, that'll be given by Dr. Jean Borkwin around driver yielding. Before we jump into the presentation itself, I need to give out the beginning codes for people who will be looking for continuing education units. Um, And we give you a code at the beginning, and we give you a code at the end. So do not leave without it. So if you're ready, this is the continuing ed code for the beginning part of this presentation. It is 52315. Again, it's 52315. So I'm going to introduce you to our speaker briefly now. Um, the Reverend Gene Borkwin, it's Reverend Dr. Gene Borkwin, I should say, is a native New Yorker, and he has worked for nearly three decades at the National Center for Deafblind Youth and Adults in suburban New York, and ten years at the Lexington School for the Deaf in New York City. He holds a master's in deafness rehab and a doctorate in healthcare administration. And he has lectured nationally and internationally on topics related to communication and mobility for people who are deaf, people who are blind, and people who are deafblind. He is a certified mobility specialist, a low vision therapist, and a sign language interpreter. He's been published more than a dozen times in peer-reviewed journals, including a series of six studies on this whole topic of driver yielding, which we're going to hear about today. And in addition, he is a deacon in the Episcopal Church, is a very good friend, and as a person hearing loss and total blindness, I can, that he knows what he's a practitioner and has helped me deal with traffickers. And with that, I want to introduce... Thank you, Jean.
0: Thank you, Karen. It's it's really wonderful to be introduced by uh, one of my heroes, which is you, and uh, all the work we've shared at the past Coalition in New York City. And uh, I, I would mention that I'm a person living with vision loss and hearing loss as well. I wear hearing aids, and I have glaucoma, which is... Uh, Fairly advanced. Uh, Let me just dive right into the topic now uh, and get us going. Uh, Today's topic is driver yielding. And I'll certainly be, uh, we'll certainly get into what I mean by that. Uh, But I wanted to start out with a little bit of a survey we did at a recent last year conference, the Southern Orientation Mobility Association. To give you some idea of where my profession, the orientation and mobility profession, is is, as far as this topic goes, Uh, we did two surveys. And I'll just point out some of the highlights, as I will throughout this presentation, about what's on the slides. Uh, I should mention anybody who wants a copy of this presentation in PDF format, please let me know. let the powers that be contact me and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the presentation. So we did a survey at this 2020 uh OM conference. And some of the highlights that stood out to me when we talk about driver, drivers yielding and blind pedestrians, is that 52% of the uh, people at this conference, and these are engaged OM instructors, 52% had not learned. Anything about uh, anything advanced about yielding techniques in their own and graduate center, and forty-seven percent of those who participated in that O conference, forty-seven percent had not taught any kind of advanced yielding techniques in their practice uh, when they were working as orientational mobility specialists. We did a, a sort of a a little screening exam, a survey, and we found out that one percent responded correctly to a a question regarding drivers yielding at roundabouts, 2% responded correctly at drivers yielding uh, and uh, things like displaying your cane at a crosswalk, 13% answered correctly about drivers yielding and using a head turner and eye gaze as part of a technique to cross more safely with less risk. And 47% answered correctly regarding a driver's yielding and using something like waving a cane or wearing a reflective vest, all of those things being techniques that uh, have been taught by the profession. So in general, what we find is the profession has not really advanced from uh, the things we taught decades ago about what confronts uh, a pedestrian at a crosswalk when they're about to make a decision to cross. And not only haven't we advanced in our, uh, our teaching, uh, a lot of people aren't aware uh, that the pedestrian has a lot of control over this situation. What we've basically taught is that the pedestrian stands at the corner, uh, perhaps they uh, display their cane, And when they hear the near parallel uh, surge uh, come from the vehicles, they cross at a traffic controlled intersection, of course, attempting to monitor for turning traffic. But there's no, in the standard techniques we've used, there's been no uh, attention or not much attention paid to the pedestrian having any kind of influence on that situation and on drivers. We're going to do this in two parts. The first part we're going to explore yielding in general and how the factors in the environment may impact the degree to which drivers may yield to pedestrians. When we talk about the uh, built-in environment, we're talking about things like the traffic lights and the uh, curvature uh, at the corner, uh, how wide the radius is, or the uh geometry at the intersection, or the sounds that are going on at the intersection, or the signage that is placed at the intersection. We don't have a lot of control over that as blind or or low vision people. We don't have a lot of control over those things. The second part of the uh, presentation will be about how we ourselves uh, can be think of ourselves as empowered when we are at a crosswalk and we want to cross. Well, let me start with a little bit of uh, a definition of uh, a, a few facts about why this is important. Over the past several decades, we've had about four or 5,000 pedestrians killed every year. We've seen a recent and kind of scary rise in that statistic. In 2019, there were almost 7,000 deaths from uh, pedestrian vision crashes, and more than 75,000 pedestrians were injured. Crossing the street. So, those are some general numbers that might give us pause to think about how much driver yielding is critical to how we get through the world. Pedestrians must be able to analyze. I'm going to give you a quote. Somebody wrote this. Who is it? Oh, it's me. Pedestrians must be able to analyze levels of risk in order to make decisions. Assessing the level of risk can include determining the likelihood that drivers will yield to a pedestrian crossing a street. To some extent, all pedestrians depend on yielding behavior of drivers, whether by intention or circumstance, and regardless of the laws and regulations. So every time a pedestrian is hit by a car, it's obviously because the car didn't stop. The pedestrian, uh, in many situations, has the right of way, but nonetheless uh, can be the victim of that kind of a collision. So there are lots of variables that are in play when we get to a crosswalk and the things that we can control and can't control. I'm just going to go through the things that I call environmental built-ins, those things we can't control. I don't want to spend too much time on this because if you can't control it, your choices become uh, become less. You can decide not to cross. You can decide to cross someplace else. You can decide to get assistance. The options are there. There's always an option. But uh, it, these are situations where you don't have direct control over what's going on. So let's look at some of these factors quickly. Uh, weather and lighting are two of them. In 2018, 26% of pedestrian deaths occurred in crashes between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., and 24% occurred between 9 p.m. and midnight. There's an indication from a 2013 TRB report, uh, Traffic uh, Review Board, that for every increase in street illumination at night, the likelihood for a driver to yield is increased by 4.5%. So lighting is important. In another study in Canada, 15% of all incidents occurred on wet roads when it was raining. Keep in mind, 15% of all travel by pedestrians is not during rain. So that's a very high percent. So weather and lighting are big factors We do not have a lot of control over that, except to make those choices like not going out and traveling during during bad conditions. Signals are another big factor at the corner that we don't have a lot of control over. Standard traffic signals are probably the best built-in feature that causes drivers to yield. A study conducted during several months at five busy intersections in Fairfax, Virginia, found that on average, only one motorist ran a red light in 20 minutes at each intersection. So signals have a very high rate of compliance from drivers. Today, we've got a lot of non-standard traffic signals going on. We have things like lead pedestrian intervals. We have exclusive pedestrian uh, phasing at corners and those kinds of Uh, Traffic signals that are implemented in modern traffic engineering can be very confusing for blind and low vision travelers. And so even those things that are reliable and standard, like traffic signals, are becoming more complex and in many ways less accessible to, uh, to blind and low vision travelers uh, of course, APS are uh, accessible pedestrian signals are a solution to that, but as we know in the USA, they're not. They're often not installed at intersections. One of the largest factors on whether drivers are going to yield or not uh, is speed. Speed has a huge impact on how drivers uh, how drivers respond to the presence of pedestrians. And uh, there's a couple of charts on the screen right now that show the relationship between the speed of the vehicle and the uh, amount of yielding that happens when uh, drivers uh, encounter a pedestrian. And in every one one of those uh, graphs, which we won't go through one by one, there's a dramatic uh, decrease in yielding as the speed of the vehicle goes faster, we don't have a lot of control in the standard OM world, the standard way we learn to cross streets, over the speed of vehicles. There are other factors that we can't control, like expectation. The driver's expectation of a pedestrian to cross at a particular location is affected by the number of pedestrians normally at that crossing as well as the features such as the presence of a marked crosswalk or signage. So if you're crossing at a place and you know it's a place where pedestrians are not usually present, you haven't heard or encountered other pedestrians at that place, that increases the risk that the driver is not going to yield for you. And we'll get into some of the science of that as we get into the uh Into the techniques that can give you control over this. There are other factors like crowds, the number of people crossing at the same time will affect the uh, amount of drivers yielding to you as we go through things, as we go through uh, the steps to get across the street. There are different geometries of the intersection. How is it built? Where is it placed that impacts the amount of driver yielding? At places like mid-block campus crossings, studies have shown that drivers yield 80% of the time. While at an uncontrolled crossing at a downtown intersection, when I say uncontrolled, I mean there are no traffic controls there, as little as 5% of the drivers that pass by will yield to a pedestrian waiting to cross. There are T intersections and roundabouts, and each of these types of uh, configurations, what we call... uh, Intersection geometry, each of these affects how much drivers are going to yield. We don't have a lot of uh, control over how much uh, a driver is going to yield because we can't control the geometry at that intersection. Factors like the curb radii, how wide or how narrow that curb for the corner is, where you're, where you're waiting to cross at the crosswalk, the wider that curb is, the longer and the uh, it curves around the corner, the faster a vehicle is going to be able to go. Many of these factors are really subconscious to the driver. The driver doesn't think about these things. The driver reacts to the uh, to the conditions on the road, the geometry, and so we're dealing with a, a thing where driving uh, is almost automatic, and in certain circumstances, with certain variables, drivers will yield more or less. Just an example of how sensitive yielding is for for drivers, and how not under their control things are, or conscious control. I'll uh, I'll give you one study which was done in 2015. And you may be surprised to know that bias can impl- influence racial bias. Bias can influence the amount of yielding that drivers have. In a study back then, they looked at black pedestrians versus uh, pedestrians uh, who were not black, and they found out that pedestrians who were black were passed by twice. By twice as many cars and experience wait times that were 32% longer than white pedestrians. So, and there's a graph here showing that the, there's uh, some bias in the first car yielding to the pedestrian. And when it's the second car or later, the yielding to black pedestrians actually is less than half as uh, often as white pedestrians. So we're talking about a topic that uh, is quite sensitive to a lot of built in factors that we cannot control. There's also studies on signage and what signage does. We did a study, Donna Sauerberger and I, uh, and we looked at the impact of a sign at a, yield, uh, at a yield crosswalk. That's a crosswalk with a yield sign. We put up placards that said uh, deafblind pedestrians. And at, and at an almost identical roadway we put uh, we left the yield signs up without deafblind pedestrian uh, signs we uh, one of our deafblind consumers thought that this would cause the traffic to yield to them because they couldn't hear or see the traffic and in fact when the signs were put in the deafblind pedestrian was quite happy. Uh, she said she claimed that the drivers were, of course, yielding to her much more and she felt much safer. The problem with that is that the results of the study were that the signage didn't help at all. In fact, in terms of raw, of raw average, the crosswalks with the deafblind blind pedestrian signs had less yielding by drivers than the ones without the signs. There are many types of signs. They get various amounts of, of yielding. Everything from uh, children at play sign, uh, slow, blind child area, those signs tend to not do what we think they might do. So, so I'm going to pause for a moment at this, uh, at this point and ask if there's any questions about any of the stuff I've talked about that's sort of not in our control, those factors that are in the built-in environment. And Holly, if you can let me know if anybody has burning questions, I'd like to take a few now to make sure that what we're talking about and that the topic is clear. Raymond Racer. Okay, yeah. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, I'm a guide dog user. In your research, uh, have you... uh, come across any statistics talking about how guide dog handlers are uh, 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 respected or disrespected uh, when you come to a crosswalk? Raymond, uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, there's very little done in this area. Uh, what There is one study that has multiple results, one published study that did uh did, did uh, research at different kinds of intersections. And in every single one of the parts of this study, the uh, user of a guide dog, uh, a guide dog team, uh, got less yielding than a person using a cane. And in one of the situations, I think it was a low uh, traffic density area, uh, the person with a dog actually got less yielding from drivers than an ordinary non-blind user. That is somebody standing at the corner waiting to cross who didn't have a cane or a dog. So those small studies indicate that uh, dog guides uh, teams in general get less yielding. Now I've talked to a number of dog guide uh, master trainers And they have concurred or backed up that data with real-life stuff, and it was their general impression that that is true. I can tell you that uh, there is the mitigating factor that uh, many door guides are trained by schools to be aware of traffic and to do a traffic check and to uh, go ahead with intelligent disobedience if the a dog detects uh, impending danger. So that's the kind of a factor that may balance some of that increased risk out. But we haven't done the full studies on that. Uh, you know, you might want to talk to Lucas or people, uh, Lucas Frank or uh, Ellie Carlson, Carlson, uh, Carlson, who's worked with a lot of people in these circumstances. But that's my best answer. It's a great question. I uh-huh. think we have time to take maybe one more question. Five
2: one eight five one seven. This is Mary Beth. Um, actually, I was going to, to um, ask you that question, but I was wondering if you'd done any studies of um, the how uh, the you know how they have a signs like duck crossing. I used to live in a place. I'm a guide dog user where they had you know the sign that said goose crossing, and I could be standing there in the pouring rain with groceries. It was right by Hannaford, okay, by a grocery store, and. They they would cars would in a brace for the geese, but but they would not yield for me. I was wondering yeah, if you've done any studies but, about Animal Crossing. Yeah, well, there, there are uh,
0: lots of. First of all, I, I want to say that some of the techniques we're going to talk about in part two will be applicable to dog guide users, and they can use the techniques. But they uh, but we haven't studied them with dog guide users. But they will be. Uh, you can you can. Judge for yourself whether you think some of these techniques are going to work, uh, those techniques that don't require a cane. Second of all, there are tons of studies on this kind of signage. Uh, you know, when people yield for geese, it's usually because there are geese there. I lived, I, I worked uh, in a town with a geese crossing. Uh, the, the question is, those signs that are posted to warn drivers, but your problem is that the time you'll get hit is those times when the driver doesn't notice you. Like Drivers will yield to pedestrians and geese if they notice you. But when we look at the science we're going to talk about, you're going to see the problem is when they don't notice you. Signage like that, blind child signage, signage that says uh, deaf child in the area have been studied up the wazoo. That's a technical term. And uh, those signs are sometimes effective for a short while when they're first put up, but the long-term results of studies shows that they make absolutely no difference in crash statistics in the area and no no difference in injury in the area, no difference in mortality in the area, and no difference in yielding in the area. They just are not things that are very effective. If they give you a false sense of hope, if you put up a blind child sign in your area because you have a blind child, and you think that's going to help, and you change your assessment of risk based on it, that's a harmful thing, that's a negative thing, because that sign in study after study has been found to be ineffective. And just as I I mentioned earlier, the sign about deaf-blind crossing uh, signs uh, was totally ineffective in our study. So uh, a lot of I, th- those are things, I based on what I know, I would never recommend. So we haven't done it directly. We did it directly on deafblind people and yielding. But uh, all the other studies from the traffic field say they don't work. I think what I'd like to do is if other people have questions, let's hold off because I'd like to get into part two. And we are going to have uh, more opportunities to ask questions as we go along. OK, so. What are the uh, phenomena that influence drivers' responses? Why don't drivers yield? Wouldn't we all like to know that? Who of us have not cursed a driver uh, as we were crossing the street. If you haven't done that, then you know, uh, I'm in ordained life, but you're the saint because I think we've all had this experience. and the assumption is always that the driver was careless or, the driver was uh, unskilled, or the driver, as I've heard from my students, especially my deafblind students, who told me many times over the years, those drivers just want to kill me. And uh, that response is understandable, uh, but not helpful, because you know, yelling at that driver for the moment is probably not going to do anything for the other you know, 10,000 drivers you'll encounter in the next half hour. So... Let's look at some major reasons why drivers uh, cause injury uh, and kill pedestrians. So here's some general estimates. Uh, you might think dr- drunk driving is a problem, and that is indeed true. Some of the studies, and these are generalities based on me looking at a number of studies in the field, about 30 or 35% of drivers that kill people. Uh, have some kind of intoxication involved. The uh, about thirty-five to forty percent have the driver distracted. Although I'm not sure what that means. Uh, being distracted does that mean they're actively engaged in other activity, or were they distracted by uh, something in the environment? Uh, remember, when a driver looks out into the driving space. it has got a million details to that he, he might attend to, and we'll talk about more about this in a minute. But uh, it is uh, an automatic process, what the driver is gonna see and not see. And it is absolutely normal for a driver not to see a pedestrian at a crosswalk. Our vision system is not a, a video recorder, and we do not see everything that is in the environment. Only, uh, only a tiny percent of drivers, interesting enough, that are not intoxicated or uh, ever charged or even given a check So, distractions are the number three cause of pedestrian fatalities. And a lot of that is electronic devices. And that's probably why we've seen an uptick in pedestrian uh, vehicle collisions. Uh, so, that is a concern. But it's not a concern that we cannot influence. So, even if you look at the amount of intoxication that might be involved, well, with a number of people that are distracted by uh, electronic devices such as a, a smartphone, even if you add those numbers up and you look at them different ways, there's a large gap in that in those statistics that say that. The interaction between the driver and the pedestrian is unexplained by any specific reason. The driver just fails to yield. And that is indeed a category that they count for failure to yield. Well, yeah, we know somebody just got hit. The driver didn't stop. Thanks a lot. We know that there's this huge number of failure to yield. I would put that number 100%. But Uh, In any case, there's lots to be uh, that is unexplained, and we're going to look at it and explain it. Okay, let's look at the phenomena related to seeing a pedestrian and see what's required and notice and process intention. Driving is automatic and mostly unconscious. Tom Vanderbilt wrote this great book about how we drive and why we drive. And I recommend it to everybody. Tom Vanderbilt, V A N D E R B I L T. He said, Driving, for the most part, is what psychologists call an overlearned activity. It is something we're so well practiced at that we're able to do it without much conscious thought. Drivers, even when they go back and reflect on what they've done, are mostly driving with unconscious automatic responses that they have learned through hundreds of thousands of experiences. Usually, in driving situations, decisions are made by the driver that have to be done so quickly and so automatically that if they depended on conscious thought, like an an actual reasoning process they wouldn't be able to be done because conscious reasoning is far too slow to make those kinds of decisions. There's also social theories and empirical research that drivers, and uh, the, I, not my favorite term in the scientific literature, but drivers are yielded to more if they, if they, if they uh, initiate a di- dispute Dependency response. If they see something that they automatically feel is a dependency cue, the driver will be more likely to yield. That is, drivers are, are more likely to yield to people who are perceived to be dependent, like mothers with baby carriages or people who have physical disabilities or people who are blind. So there is some kind of automatic response from drivers that say, I need to yield in this situation because. Uh, the pedestrian depends on the yielding that assumption is of course not always right but it is helpful but there's a response from drivers when they have an accident when they hurt somebody or when there's a near call and I experienced this when I was a driver I don't drive anymore because I have uh, I'm a I'm, uh, nervous about driving with my visual fields, as they are with glaucoma. But when I did, I had this very response. It's, I never saw her crossing. I never saw that pedestrian. The pedestrian just appeared there. And that is a cause of a lot of accidents. The human visual, there's a thing psychologists call the human vision cognition system. And it has only so much capacity to attend and to be aware of things in the driver's viewscape, There's a limited bandwidth is what we tech-savvy people would say. There's only so much it can see. And what has to happen for a driver to really understand that you're there and to understand your intent is that they not only see you, but their attention is drawn to you, and that that is processed on a certain level of consciousness. That all has to happen for the driver to respond to you in a meaningful way. So, at any given moment, a person's senses are bombarded with so much information that the driver can possibly take in, and through uh, and through attention, the person selects only subsets of that information for processing. Information just not re- always received. What a person is sees, or what's out there in front of their eyes, is not always processed into their awareness. And that's a basic concept to remember. So let's go on to what drivers do see or notice or become aware of. There's a phenomenon called attentional capture. A stimulus, attentional capture happens when a stimulus in the environment, which could be you standing at the corner, it could be a flashing light, it could be a sign. That stimulus alters attention away from the prevailing attention and is drawn to another object without the driver's volition. To put that in another way is you may be standing at a corner. If you're just standing there and there's nothing unique or not ordinary about you, the driver may be looking elsewhere, may be monitoring for the traffic, may be looking at other pedestrians. They may not be, their attention may not be drawn to you And so they may actually not see you. And study after study in the lab and in real life have shown this uh, attentional capture to be a real phenomenon that happens when uh, people are driving. Attentional capture is increased by the features of an object. In this case, you being the object you and your dog, or you or your cane. And those factors that are high on the list of things that gain attentional capture are salience, movement, singletonness, which means how unique you are in the environment, and the sudden onset of putting something that suddenly appears into the driver's viewscape into in front of them. These are key variables that would draw involuntarily. In other words, the driver doesn't think about it. Their attention is automatically drawn to you if you can use some of these features that increase attentional capture in your uh, crossing techniques. I'll give you an example that you, you might relate to. You're in a fairly crowded room, and there's a lot of noise around the room. Of course, people are talking, and you're standing pretty far away from somebody on the other side of the room. And all of a sudden, you hear your name. Somebody says, Holly, why is that? Why, out of all that noise and sound in the party, did you hear your name being mentioned? It's because your name has a feature in auditory attentional capture that it, without volition, draws your attention to that speech. And that's the same kind of phenomena we're talking about with the vision and the driver. And I know I've experienced that. I, I'll be in a crowded room and, say, and somebody will say, Well, that SOB gene, and my, my attention will be automatically drawn to that person. There's also a phenomena called inattentional blindness. And this phenomena is one that uh, where items that are not expected or not of interest or not meaningful to the driver are just not perceived by the visual system. There's a famous example of this. Uh, maybe you've heard about it. It's the uh, gorilla study. There's a famous experiment where a uh, people are asked to pass around black soccer balls and they're just passing them to each other in a circle. Only one of the soccer balls is white. And so the participants in this, maybe there's five or six people, they're in a circle that they keep passing these soccer balls. Everybody has a soccer ball. You pass the black soccer ball off, and you're supposed to count every time you encounter the white soccer ball. So you're focused on these balls going around in a circle. In the middle of the experiment, somebody in a giant gorilla suit comes through the, uh, through the middle of the circle. And, and like beats their chest and then passes through the circle and walks on. When they quiz people after the experiment, something like 30% of the people passing the soccer ball never see the giant gorilla pass through their circle. It's an amazing uh, experiment that shows the possibility of inattentional blindness. That is not seeing what's right in front of you. I'm going to pause here and take some questions and ask if we're kind of clear about what we're dealing with uh, when we talk about the human cognition system and how the uh, how what drivers see and how much they see and how they see can impact your situation when you're trying to cross the street. Jean-Marie.
1: So I live in Eugene, Oregon, <clears throat> and I'm. Um, what I have learned how to do is when I'm in an intersection, people must think I'm crazy. But I kind of dance at the corner and, you know, twirl my cane around and stuff, and I it, it tends to work <laughs> to make people jean. know that I'm there.
0: jean, jean, jean Marie, uh, first yeah. of all, you I know, mean, I, I only have a BA in psychology, but I'm going to pronounce you not crazy. <laughs> Second of all, we're going to look at the actual techniques and the actual studies where we use different standard techniques and and see if you find any value in them that you have uh, you have I, found something that works
1: right. When I'm at a corner, also, and someone I know someone's going to turn, I turn and I I look directly at the car and I put both my hands up to make stop and I say don't turn on me and they generally don't
0: (laughs) well gene you're half right on that you're half right on that and uh well we'll get to that okay you are definitely half right and one of the things you're doing is probably meaningless uh and part of the things you're doing are not but i'm going to hold that until we get to the studies okay i'm going to take one more question now if i could larry johnson
3: Uh, This is a fascinating subject. I want to tell you that we've been concerned about this for many, many years. In fact, uh, going back some 10 years, uh, we did a a campaign to promote driver awareness of um, uh, pedestrians with disabilities. And uh, we were somewhat successful because i think uh, all of what you're saying is true but it also i think helps if drivers can be reminded to be looking for situations where there may be pedestrians wanting to cross the street so we did uh, some public service announcements uh on television uh we did a <clears throat> a 20 minute uh, a uh, PowerPoint presentation, which we shopped around to uh, a lot of different cities here in in Texas, and it had some positive effect. We also were successful in finally getting a uh, "Don't Text While Driving" bill passed, and a uh, and another bill passed to. Uh cause a, a fine or a penalty and community service if a driver were to injure or kill a pedestrian who is visually impaired. Unfortunately, in Texas, if you hit or kill a pedestrian who is not disabled and you stop, there is no penalty. So in effect, there's Sorry. no incentive for the driver to even worry about hitting a pedestrian. So, Larry, Larry, I'm going to
0: interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you and respond to what you've said. Yeah, uh, only for the sake of time and moving on because I've got quite a bit more to say. Uh, public campaigns and enforcement are great. They often have a temporary effect. Sometimes they have a long term effect. They're in. They're very intensive things to do. They're expensive. They take a lot of time. They they uh, and they take a lot of effort. Parts of them are effective. Parts are not. You may have seen some significant changes. My family lives in Texas. I'm in Texas all the time. I I, uh, I empathize with with the experiences down there. But I'm talking about situations, and all of that is 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 good. But I'm talking about situations where you can influence the driver. Something like 300% more yielding, not a moderate yield, and something that's under your control individually. You can talk to drivers, you can tell them, you can make them aware, but in the moment when they're driving, it's mostly unconscious. So you may have affected their unconscious responses to a certain degree, but that in my mind, I've not seen a campaign that has made a significant difference. We do, we have zero, uh, we have a Plan Zero in many cities now. New York City has gone hog wild on trying to reduce traffic accidents, and we have campaigns and stickers and all sorts of things going on. And our traffic uh, collision rates were up the last year in the last year. So yes, good stuff. It's got to happen. It's good when a locality puts an effort into it. But I want to talk about when you yourself can make a difference in that situation, a serious and substantial change in the risk you're taking. So uh, I appreciate that, Larry. Thanks. Let's, let's look at some of the studies. I think I've got like another half hour, but let's take a look at what we got. And then we can, if we have a lot of time at the end, that'll be really great too. So, Conditions that are likely to be noticed and understood are when inattentional blindness is low, attentional capture is high, items are in the attention set. Each of us has an attention set. That is things we know are we have to attend to. Remember that example about your name, hearing your name in a crowded room? That's in your attention set. If something's in the attention set, that triggers attentional capture, that's going to be helpful. Guess what's in people's attention sets? A long white cane. A long white cane is one of the most recognizable things uh, on the planet. And so, and finally, the meaningfulness of what you're presenting to the driver is, does it have some meaning? Does it give the driver some instantaneous and unconscious uh, reason to understand your intent and also what what helps to, for things to be noticed is the movement and sudden onset and what if you keep these in mind you'll see the results of the study that will make sense at this point point. and like jean marie you too may start dancing at the corner okay I'm going through some uh, slides here first. Okay. First thing I'm going to tell you about is a study we did. And when I say we, this is usually Rob Wall Emerson, who uh, is in charge of the o program at Western Michigan, and Donna Sauerberger, whose presentation earlier today you might have gone to, and Janet Ballo, who is a uh, a goddess in the o field and environmental access, names you might know. And uh, little old me, I was usually the subject, the person standing at the corner waving the cane while they collected the data. So this slide I'm looking at now says, does the cane have to be white? And I'm going to say to you before I present the results, you can use whatever color cane you want. I'm not the cane police. None of us are. You make your own decisions on cane color. And certainly there are times when you're using a cane and the purpose of that cane is not to cause drivers to yield. So, you know, you want to do a hoo-ha and, uh, and uh, use a black cane at a tuxedo event, uh, go right ahead. I'm just sharing with you the results of what happened at a, at a crosswalk when somebody wanted to cross the street and we looked at the color of the cane we looked at four different colors. We looked at a green cane, a yellow cane, a black cane, and a white cane, essentially. Some of the, the black and white cane had the little red strip at the bottom, but other than that, <clears throat> the subject in the study did the same thing over and over and over and rotated the color of the cane through each uh, data for each data point in the study, and I'll just give you the results. The person using the green cane, that would be me, got 18% yielding. This is uh, yields from a turning car at an intersection. The car gets the green light. The pedestrian took their cane and flagged it out into the street, expecting a driver to yield. And with the green cane, 18% of the folks uh, driving those cars yielded. With a yellow cane, 31% 31% of those folks yielded. With a black cane, 50% of the drivers yielded. With a white cane, 68% of the drivers yielded. So just to make the, the biggest comparison, if you're at a corner and you're using a green cane, and say you flagged your cane because you wanted the driver to see you, so you moved your ca- cane out and tapped it twice before you decided to cross. Uh, you've got 50% more yielding, twice as much, uh, well, three times as much yielding, three or four times as much yielding as the person with the white cane. And I'm pres- I'm just presenting some bar charts on here that show the difference between, we-, we measured yielding in several different ways, and the bar chart shows that. Where you stand at the corner can have an influence on yielding. And this is another indication of how sensitive the driver's automatic responses to you can be to just what you do and where you stand and what you do with your cane. A person standing a foot from the curb at a crosswalk, they did a study, not my study, and 45% of the drivers passing by yielded to a person standing a foot back from the uh, curb. 53% yielded to a person standing at the curb edge and 60% yielded to a person standing just one foot into the into the uh, crosswalk. Not recommending you stand in the crosswalk when you are waiting to cross the street and deciding when to make that decision. But what I am trying to say is stepping way back from the curb while you wait to cross is probably a bad idea because it will affect how often the driver notices you, processes your presence, and yields. Uh, head turning and gaze, we did a study in several circumstances sort of on whether turning one's head towards the driver and making believe you were making eye contact. This is not real eye contact, but it's, it's a simulated eye contact. So in the study, we turned towards the driver as the driver was uh, coming towards us. And uh, another variable was we would turn our head back and forth, monitoring the driver uh, who was about to turn into our crosswalk. And in another study, we uh, constantly monitored the driver who was uh, waiting to turn as we were waiting to cross. That is, we turned our head back towards the driver uh, several times. And we looked at these conditions that the pedestrian could do. And whether we were... Just displaying a cane with no head motion, or we were turning our head and acting as if we were uh, monitoring that car, or we were turning our head and and doing a gaze, in other words, a simulated eye contact, uh, or we were turning our head at the last moment when we heard the traffic surge and we turned our head towards the driver. There was no statistical difference between any of those situations. The yielding just didn't change significantly uh, by mean or median uh, when we looked at the amount of uh, yielding at that head uh, crossing. So if you turn to the driver and you cannot make real eye contact, uh, it's pro- none of those techniques of turning and looking towards them work, or it didn't work in our study. We did a big study of 375 trials where where about 400 times I left the curb when I was told to, and I stepped into the curb and proceeded out into traffic as a driver was approaching on a collision path with me from my right. In other words, the driver was in the far lane, I stepped out, and I just walked into the street under various conditions, and that driver was approaching, and we I stepped out so that if I just proceeded into the far lane, I would have gotten squashed by the car. And this was a study. I don't know how we got away with it, but I did about 400 trials. About 375 of them were good. And here's what we found. Now, remember, I'm aggressively stepping into the street on a collision path with the car coming from my right. We looked at uh, different conditions. We looked at just ordinary clothing, no cane, nothing, and we got about 41% yielding. We used a giant orange flag, me holding out a big orange flag and waving it in front of me, and the yielding went from 41 to 62%. I wore a bright orange vest, and in that case, the yielding was 49%. Those three numbers... Wearing ordinary clothing with no cane, flagging a big orange flag in front of me, or wearing a bright orange vest are not statistically different. So we didn't find an orange flag or wearing a, a vest very effective at all. We did find an effect from the cane. When I stepped out into the street with a cane in my hand, the yielding, whether I was waving a flag or using a vest, the yielding in this situation where I'm on a collision path with the driver went way up to the high 80s or or, or, or around 90%. So we definitely saw a prominently displayed and moving cane in a situation when the pedestrian is on a collision path with the vehicle coming at them will make a difference. So we knew that the cane was somewhat effective, but we wanted to look at the presence of a cane and use of a cane in different situations. And so we did a situation at a an intersection where the cars would be turning right into the crosswalk where the pedestrian is about to cross. The pedestrian is waiting for the onset of the walk signal, and the driver is waiting for the onset of the green signal so that when that happened, we looked at how often drivers would yield to that pedestrian who's about to step out into the same space the driver wants to go through, that is the crosswalk. And in those situations, we looked at four different situations. We looked at just simply holding your cane out displayed so the driver could see it. We looked at holding a cane out so where the driver could see it and putting our hand up and in sort of like a stop gesture towards the driver, which was behind us on our left. We tried waving the cane up, that is flagging the cane, we call that, and we looked at a thing called reversible step. That is when the pedestrian flags the cane and at the same time takes one safe step forward into the crosswalk and then can check the situation and can reverse that step into the crosswalk if they want to. And I'm gonna call that the reversible step. That is the pedestrian believes it's time to cross, listens for traffic, takes one step into the street and flags that came back and forth. And we wanted to see under those circumstances how often drivers yielded. This is a situation a lot of us in say cities or places where there's a traffic control, uh, traffic signal, uh, find ourselves in. So we did the cane display, the cane flag, the reversible step, and the hand up gesture. That gesture that Jean-Marie talked about, about holding her hands up towards the driver. And we looked at uh, in places where there were... Uh, we looked in several situations and think we were in... We were in... We might have, One of the southern states when we did this, and we did some trials in, in New York City and around and some studies in Michigan and some trials in Michigan. Here's what we found in a nutshell. We looked at the yielding under control conditions. That is just the person wearing clo- clothes, no cane, no dog. Yielding went, was around 30 percent. And by one uh, measure, it was as low as 8 percent. But in the two other conditions that we measured yielding, it was about thirty, low 30s. When we did the cane display, the yielding went up to an average of something under 40%. The difference between cane and no cane in that situation, and I'm talking about a cane being held out and displayed while the person is waiting to cross in a prominent position where the driver could see it if he he attends to it. There was no statistical difference between somebody standing there with just ordinary clothing, no dog, no cane, and having a cane. So the cane display was statistically insignificant. The cane display is what I learned to do when I was in mobility school. It may be what most of you learn to do when you're standing at a crosswalk. You know, Go to the crosswalk and, and now uh, analyze the intersection, get ready, put yourself in a ready position, put your cane out, listen for the traffic surge, or if you can, uh, look for the visual walk sign. And then when it's your turn and you think that the traffic is yielding, just go. It does. The presence of the cane in that situation makes no statistically significant difference. It makes a little bit of difference in a number of studies, but it doesn't make a great difference. When we did the cane flag, yielding went up to an average of about 59% on average. I'm looking at three statistics here. When we did the hand up, holding our hand up towards the potentially turning vehicle, the turning driver, when we put a hand up towards them right before we were about to go into the street, yielding went up to, I'm looking at the statistics now, maybe an average in the high 60s. When we did the reversible step, that is, when we uh, took one reversible step into the street at the same time, flagging our cane out into the crosswalk, yielding went up to something between 66 and 91%. That is a two to 300% increase in yielding from the drivers who are expecting to turn. That is from a low of maybe 32% of driver yielding uh, in our control condition, to over 90% yielding when we did the reversible step. That's a 300% increase. Uh, There's a picture on the screen now of me stopping a car at a crosswalk at a roundabout, and I'm holding my hand up towards the car. And you'll take my word for it, the car stopped. So... Let's look at some, uh, you know, I'd like to stop there and see if there are questions about that, because that's a major study. Do we have any questions? Mitchell,
3: Hi, are you doing talking lights?
0: Uh, what do you mean by a talking light?
3: The talking lights that I've seen on streets sometimes where you push a button and it's in a, across the street. Yeah, that's
0: an accessible pedestrian signal. It should not be talking because the speech message is not recommended for a lot of reasons I don't have time to go into. Uh, it, it should make a, a, a different kind of sound. But the, the, every study on accessible pedestrian signals uh, tell, uh, say they're highly effective. The only thing that accessible pedestrian signal, APS, does is tell you when the walk signal is on. That's all it does. It, it doesn't make you safer. It doesn't stop turning cars. Uh, it doesn't make the driver more aware of you. Its sole purpose in life is to, it, it gives you the sound, either by rapid tick or by speech method, when the walk sign goes on. And it does that through most of the walk sign. I'm simplifying this a bit, but that's its only reason in life. And, of course, knowing the moment the walk sign goes on is helpful. It's very valuable information. But it's just giving you accessibility to the visual signal. And every study that's been done shows that 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 will increase, uh, uh, that will reduce the risk to the pedestrian. But going, uh, remarks on that now uh, I, I don't want to go beyond because that—that's an entire two-hour lecture. One
2: thousand five hundred two. Could you could you please,
1: uh, Jean, describe the the way you fla- the flagging of the king and the way that was effective, along with the uh, irreversible step
0: yes i could i've got a video coming up for those who could access it but and and i'll show it and describe it but i'll just say for flagging the cane usually what that means is you start in a a ready position of the cane being displayed on right-handed so i display the cane out from my body and the cane on my left toe and my hand uh leaning towards the left so i'm holding the cane tip to toe and the uh handle of the cane is held out so the driver behind me to my left can see it and to flag it you move the cane about waist level and you tap once on the right side and then move the cane up to about waist level again and you tap the cane once on your left side that's how i do it as a right hander so it's cane being held out at the time you want to flag it's tap to the right tap to the left And then you would usually pause to check, do a traffic check again to see if that is effective. Uh, With the reversible step, you're doing the same thing, except you're taking one step out into the street. Now, that step has to be known to you or or. But you listening to how the traffic is moving, you should know that that you should already know that step is, is safe. Like, you know, it's not going to put you in the direct line of turning traffic. That's true most of the time. Most of the time, pedestrians, almost all the time, pedestrians take a step into the street. If you're at that corner and you feel that the cars are turning in a way that put them almost on the sidewalk, then you would choose not to do that. Uh, so but that's the flagging. That's the reversible step with the flagging. And, of course, the hand up, if I can describe it again, is you're displaying the cane up. But right before you want to cross, you're taking your hand, in my case, my left hand, and I'm pushing it out in a stop motion and holding it up in that gesture towards the driver to my left behind me. And that's a technique that might work with door guide users. Some of the other things won't. You really can't, as far as I know in my discussions, can't do a reversible step with door guides. You can't keep stepping out and telling the dog to go and then changing your mind. So you can't do a a reversible hop-hop or a reversible forward command, and keep stepping back. That's not, that's not healthy for, uh, for the dog. But the hand up is the one thing that you might be able to do uh, physically that would increase yielding. Uh, thank you for the question. Kevin Shell.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Great presentation. This was very
1: informative. I um, was very interested when you were talking about the part about the color of the canes um, and the differences there. I typically don't use a white can. I use more of a kind of either a black one, a blue, purple, or yellow. Um, could you quickly? Um, uh, I, w- I was kind of a bit distracted when you were going over the stats at that specific point. Could you quickly remind? Yeah, I'm about? not
0: gonna. I, I won't go back on the slides. But the 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 green cane got about 18 percent yielding. I think the uh, the green got 18. The yellow got 38 the black got 50% yielding, and the white got 68% yielding. And that's because of what we talked about, that uh, vision-cognition phenomena of attentional set. If the It doesn't matter. The, it's not the intrinsic value of the cane being white. It's that that's what's in the driver's attention set. That's what gives them the cue to attend to you. It's a, it's, it's a culturally-laden concept. Because I'm sure if, if uh, you know, if the if the first canes in the world back when uh, they started in England and in the United States were uh, all yellow, then the what would be in people's attention set would be the yellow cane. But as as society is now, the white cane gives you uh, about three times the yielding that uh, a green cane, a dark green cane would give. Good question. Any other questions? Diana Olivera.
2: Well, thank you so much, my God. This has been so helpful to me. Um, I'm new to Virginia, and I moved from Florida, which is pretty flat. And uh, I live uh, right to where uh, the intersection of Leesburg Pike and George Mason Drive, which is a very, seems to me like a very dangerous intersection. We don't have any... Um, um what do you call this this um lights with the the the, 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 the sound or nothing here so that's one of, that's one of my my next tasks now my question to you is um how how do I contact you or how do I get to um, advocate for that in our um, area here because I'm really Since I moved here a year ago, I never was um, able to cross Lisbon Pike. And I have to sometimes get an Uber or get Metro, which costs me some money to go across the street because I'm afraid to cross it.
0: Diana, there's a couple of solutions. One is uh, there are things like crossing cards and signs that will definitely cause drivers to help you cross the street if there are no pedestrians. But going to accessible pedestrian signals, APS, I want to say that a hundred times, but I don't have the time. You can contact me, the powers that be at the convention, have my information. If you write to me, I can, I'll be happy to help you advocate for installation of APS. I have to warn you, APS are no federal law nor any traffic engineering manual mandates that they have to put APS in for you. They it just it's not law. It's not uh, approved. It's in the draft public right of way access guidelines for the federal government. But that has been it's been in that draft status since the early 90s. And it's not PM law. So I know I'm running out of time. You also might one want minute want to con- contact oh, no. us at, at the past coalition in New York where Dr. Gorgie and I have worked on advocating for APS uh, quite uh strenuously for the last dozen years or so. Any other questions in the 30 seconds I have?
1: Linda Faust? Well, I'd like to see the white cane law be enforced, especially after I heard all the data how people are programmed not to pay much attention. And I'd like to hear more about the talking traffic lights as as well, why you don't uh,
0: uh, agree with them. What do you mean I don't agree with them? APS are great. Every study shows an APS is good. Why would I not agree with you having asked? No, I don't know. Uh, maybe I, I
1: just uh, didn't hear you right. Okay, so about the yeah, white cane and, law. And,
0: well, you there are you white cane laws can do whatever they say. There's no there's no enforcement mechanism. Enforcement is long-term. Enforcement is expensive. Enforcement and public uh, public outreach is difficult. I'm asking you to take control of your situation and empower yourself with your own techniques.
1: Do do you know if other mobility instructors are getting trained like you suggested how to use the cane so that I could get some, uh, you know, kind of one-on-one experience uh, on how to hold the cane and be safe crossing?
0: That's a great that's a great question Linda. It's, all of this is in the literature. I spent half my retired life now doing these kind of presentations that uh, we have our first textbook out that mentions driver yielding and ha- how that can happen and so that's uh, we're trying to put that in the field. Uh, it hasn't been part of our standard training. Uh, so we're, uh, many of us, people like lucas and karen have been trying to get this into the onm profession i teach a course at a university level for person uh, to train new OMers and trying to get this information into the field so it's an excellent question and anything you guys can do to uh, help get the, the word out there cuz tr- truly people trained 40 50 even people trained last year, it may not be in their O&M curriculum when they go to school. Thank you so much. Karen, do you want to Close yes, us out. You. Yes, I wish can I had more all, time.
1: Can you all hear me? I need to give the ending code for CEUs. I don't want anybody to get cheated. And heaven knows we've gotten a lot of continuing education today. So if you're ready, the ending code that you'll need to include when you apply for your CEUs is four three nine eight four. Four three nine eight four. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. And thank you. You've been a fabulous audience. Everybody have a great
2: convention.